This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Karen O'Hanlon-Court welcoming you to this Bitesize Bio web seminar, which today is sponsored by Zeiss. Since 1846, it has been the mission of Zeiss to constantly improve microscopy through innovation. With their unique portfolio of light, electron, ion and X-ray microscopes, they enable research and industry for the challenges of tomorrow. Highly skilled application specialists support your work and make sure you get the most out of your investment. Today's presentation is titled Mouse Whole Brain Volume Electron Microscopy for Cellular Connectomics, enabling large-scale SEM projects with Zeiss Multi-SEM, and is being presented by Dr. Sean McCullough, who is a project leader at the Max Planck Institute for Neurobiology in the Department of Electrons, Photons, Neurons, and Dr. Annalena Eberle, who is a neuroscience specialist and product manager for Zeiss Multi-SEM. After completing his PhD in neuroscience at John Hopkins University, Sean worked with E.G. Jones at UC Davis as a postdoc on the Brain Maps project, an internet-enabled high-resolution histo- and cytochemical brain atlas for myriad species. He subsequently moved to Germany to work with Winfred Denk on volume electron microscopy of the whole mouse brain. Sean's current research is focused on developing improved methods for preparing mammalian whole brains for electron microscopy, high throughput volume electron microscopy using block face and serial section imaging, and further improving the brain on tape to be a useful tool for imaging and reconstructing brain-wide neuronal circuits. After finishing her PhD in neuroscience at a Max Planck Institute, Annalena joined Zeiss to support the multi-SEM team in 2012. Throughout her scientific work, she used all kinds of microscopic techniques and was always fascinated by the different facets you can find within the same subject with different imaging modalities. The thing she enjoys most about her new job is to see the astonishment on people's faces when they hear about multi-SEM for the first time. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you may have into the questions box, which appear on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Sean and Annalena at the end. The recording of the webinar will be available at bit.ly forward slash multi-SEM. So now, over to Sean and Annalena for the presentation. Hi, yes, hello. I will be talking about mouse whole brain volume electron microscopy for cellular connectomics, and I would like to begin with uh, sort of the big overview of how we might approach uh, this sort of project. Um, a bit of history I'm, uh, throughout neuroscience. Uh, we have been wanting to have a map of how all of the neurons in an individual brain are connected to get together. Uh, and since the time of Santiago Ramoni Cajal using the Golgi method more than a century ago, uh, we have been, as neuroscientists, trying to understand how a single brain is connected, how, uh, the, for instance, in the mouse brain, there are 100 million neurons, uh, how each of these individual neurons are precisely connected to every other or all the other neurons throughout the brain. We want a complete map of the connections in a single brain. And the reason why this is important is because everything that we do in life, all of our behaviors, all of our perceptions and cognitions are a consequence of uh, the dynamics and uh, network uh, or the organization of these neurons and how they're, they're connected together. And so as, as neuroscientists, if we want to understand the behavior of an organism or how it's able to do, uh, it's, it's what it's able to do, we have to actually look at the single neuron level. Uh, we have to see how all of the neurons through, throughout its brain are connected together. Um, like I said, there's a rich history here in, in neuroanatomy, extending more than a century ago. 
and what for me is a, a neuroscientist uh, what has very much uh, excited me has been recent developments in technology that um, allow us at least for the first time to actually uh, approach the, the issue or to be able to um, get at the, the the problem or to solve the problem of of determining the precise wiring diagram for a single mammalian brain. So in this case, in this slide, I'm showing an overview for um, the mouse brain or how one might proceed to determine the complete synaptic connectivity for all the 100 million neurons in a single mouse brain. And starting on the left-hand side, we start with uh, the sample preparation. Now, because of the fine scale of the structure of the neurons and synapses in the brain, we can we have to use electron microscopy uh, to achieve the resolution in order to uh, resolve individual synapses uh, and uh, dendritic spine necks. And uh, the finest structures in the brain are 50 nanometers uh, in diameter, and so we need a resolution that is better than light, we have to go to electron microscopy to actually resolve all of the details in, in the brain that we want to see. Um, and so, but the very first step of this is we have to have a whole mammalian brain, in this case, the mouse brain, prepared for electron microscopy. And because electrons interact with metals, or at least uh, there's, this is the basis for imaging with electron microscopy. You have these uh, high atomic number of metals. We have to uh, stain these whole brain samples with heavy metals uh, to provide the contrast, which we then subsequently image with the electron microscope. And so on the left-hand side, I show uh, a whole mouse brain that I had prepared using uh, a method that was published a couple of years ago. Um, with heavy metals. In this case, it was osmium tetroxide, uh, atomic number 76, a uh, very large transition metal, easily detectable at the electron microscopic level, lets us resolve uh, cellular membranes, synapses, everything we want to see. Uh, it's pretty standard in the electron microscopy uh, literature as for EM stains. Um, once we have the sample preparation, once we have this mouse brain, that is stained with heavy metals, uh, shown in black and embedded in a plastic resin, uh, we can then proceed in two different stages. We can either uh, use a diamond knife to remove ultra-thin slices and then image the resulting surfaces after each slice. Uh, this is the top path, where I have labeled in this slide as uh, SPEM plus multisem. So in this case, there is inside this multi-beam scanning electron microscope uh, provided by Zeiss. Uh, we have in a custom in-chamber microtome with a diamond knife that is sequentially removing very thin slices from the whole mouse brain. And after each slice is removed, the surface is imaged. And this is an automatic procedure. Uh, you set the machine running, and you go off on vacation for a few months, you come back, and you uh, come back to a nanoscale map of the entire mouse brain. Now, the alternative path is the bottom one, which is labeled atom and then multisem. Uh, the idea here is that instead of imaging the block face of each image, you instead collect the sections as they're being cut with your diamond knife. You collect them on a solid substrate. Uh, it can be tape, silicon wafer. Um, in this case, I show tape collection. And the sections are collected. The sample is cut through with a diamond knife, typically uh, 30 to 50 nanometer thick sections. Uh, once the sections are collected on this tape substrate, they can then be put inside the microscope, the multi-SEM, and then imaged with a high-throughput multi-beam scanning electron microscopy. Uh, so both of these paths they're complementary in a sense. The top path is for imaging the block face. The bottom path is for imaging the thin sections. Uh, which one will get us to the whole mouse brain volume electron microscopic data set that we want? I mean, we're, at least as, as a neuroscientist, I've been pursuing uh, both of these approaches. 
the top path I've been uh, working with Winfried Denk on. He has developed these custom in-chamber microtome machines. Uh, the bottom path I have been developing uh, my own tools for the serial section collection of ultra-thin sections through uh, whole mouse brains and other mammalian brains. Um, so once we have this imaged, we can then move to the steps on the right, which is uh, analysis. So there are things which we can do with computers, such as detect the, the cell bodies or somas. We can detect synapses. Uh, all of these things, uh, we have computer programs and algorithms that are, that are very good at doing this sort of thing. Uh, the one thing we have a problem with is the auto-tracing of neurites. Uh, because they have these complicated tree-like structures and it's difficult to actually come up with uh, computer algorithms that can reliably automatically trace or segment uh, the fine processes of, of, of neurons. So this is a sole and unsolved problem on the analysis side. Uh, but for the rest of my talk, I'm just going to focus more on the left side. And, uh, and I want to back up just for a minute to discuss the sample preparation because this was a relatively recent development. Uh, sometime in the 60s, there were some uh, attempts by electron microscopists to perfuse animals with these heavy metal staining solutions such as osmium tetroxide. These attempts were published, but they were not entirely successful. Uh, the purpose of this was to uh, prepare whole brains for electron microscopy. They were not successful because there were regions in white matter uh, that were not actually perfused well enough with these heavy metal stains. So a few years back, when I moved to Germany, I, uh, with Winfried Denk, decided to take a different approach, which was to, uh, instead of perfusing with heavy metals, we would perfuse with uh, dialdehydes to cross-link proteins in, throughout the brain, remove the brain, and then simply submerge the brains in the heavy metal solutions and allow diffusion to take its course, to allow the heavy metal staining solutions to diffuse throughout the brain. Um, and typically for a mouse brain, this would take some weeks, for the staining procedure to be complete. Uh, but as it turns out, this allowed us to prepare entire mouse brains uh, for electron microscopy in such a way that we were able to preserve the cellular membrane contrast and synapses and everything that we would need in order to reconstruct the, the whole mouse brain uh, neural circuit. Uh, so we had a sample preparation. We called it BROPA. Uh, the, what that stands for, uh, and it's, it's brain-wide reduced osmium staining with pyrogoal-mediated amplification. Uh, the exact steps are shown at the top, and it, the parts highlighted in red are sort of the innovations that I introduced into it, uh, in, which were based on existing or pre-existing uh, sample preparation protocols for EM. Um, I simply explore the parameter space to find out how to get the sample preparation working in very large samples. Uh, and so the results are shown here in the bottom left. We show, uh, I'm showing this block face image through the, the mouse brain at the level uh, of, of the showing the, the striatum and, and thalamus. Uh, you can see uniform staining throughout the brain. Uh, in parts B and C, we have higher magnification images showing individual synapses and membrane contrast myelinated axons. Uh, on the lower right, I had some people go through and segment uh, individual neurites and identify synapses uh, and also do redundant tracings of neurites. Uh, the purpose of this was to evaluate the reliability of the circuit reconstruction. Uh, in short, uh, we were able to reliably reconstruct neural circuits in these brain samples. And so this brings to mind the possibility of now we have a suitable brain preparation for EM. Let's get this thing cut up and imaged. Uh, so this brings us to the, the second technological breakthrough, as I would call it, which was Zeiss's introduction of the multi-beam microscope, because prior to that, the imaging rates uh, achievable with scanning electron microscopy were typically on the order of one megahertz. With the introduction of the uh, multi-beam SEM, with 61 or 91 beams scanning in parallel. This offered uh, twofold 
uh, uh, or to a uh, uh, hundredfold increase in in in, in uh, electron beams, uh, and actually allows us now with the microscope that we have here to image at more than one gigahertz of imaging throughput. So this is actually three orders of magnitude faster imaging throughput uh, than what was just possible a few years ago. This is actually very important because when we're talking about electron microscopic imaging of something of a huge sample like a mouse brain, uh, we have to take into account that the imaging throughput is, is uh, sufficiently high in order for us to acquire, uh, to, to, to do the imaging within a reasonable period of time. And so for something like a mouse brain, we have uh, 450 cubic millimeters of tissue. Uh, if we're imaging a 20 nanometer isotropic voxel, uh, this works out to a little over uh, 1.5 years of imaging time at, at one gigahertz imaging uh, throughput. Um, for something even a smaller mammalian brain, like an Etruscan pygmy shrew, which is about one-sixth the volume of, of the mouse brain, about 80 uh, cubic millimeters, this works out to three months of imaging time. Uh, this is assuming that we're imaging at one gigahertz. The Zeiss multi-beam microscope that we have in the basement here has 91 beams. Each one is going at 20 uh, uh, megahertz. I mean, this actually gives us uh, close to 1.8 uh, gigahertz of imaging rate. So there's a factor of two reduction. So the whole mouse brain, uh, if we have the imaging throughput optimized with the multi-beam microscope, would be about a year, which is uh, quite impressive. Um, so now I, I'm going to show, I'm going to talk about the serial sectioning of the mouse brain. Uh, because this has been an approach I've been looking at. The idea here is I, we have these mouse brain samples. I want to get them sliced up into ultra-thin sections, something like 50 nanometers thick, uh, collected onto a solid substrate, some sort of tape. In this case, I'm using aluminum foil uh, for many reasons. It's intrinsically conductive. It's, uh, it's cheap. It has uh, and I can, yeah, I mean, there, there are several reasons why I, I settled on the substrate. Um, but I had to design uh, this custom tape pickup uh, or collection system in order to work with the aluminum foil, uh, which is uh, relatively easily damaged uh, if, if suitable precautions are not taken with it. Um, and so what I show on the left side is the actual, uh, the CAD design. Uh, on the right side is the working prototype. Uh, so the basic idea is that there, you start with a reel of aluminum foil. The foil is 10 millimeters wide, 500 meters long, 12 microns thick. Uh, the source reel is wound around to the roller, uh, which is dipped into a diamond knife boat. Uh, and then it loops around and goes on to this target reel up at the top. Uh, each of these two reels is actuated by uh, two DC rotary motors. Um, and this system is compatible with existing commercial ultramicrotomes. Uh, so the one shown on the right side is this Leica UltraCut, uh, but it, it could be used to work with actually any commercial ultramicrotome uh, that, that you can get on the market. And so the idea now is that the ultramicrotome is automatically sectioning your whole brain sample. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. So what I show here is a, a mouse whole brain sample that has been mounted in the sagittal plane. It's being cut at the mid-sagittal level. So the cutting range is greater than 15 millimeters. Uh, the cutting width uh, is something like seven to seven and a half millimeters. I'm using an eight millimeter uh, diamond knife from Diatome, which is mounted into a boat. The sections are cut. Uh, so in this case, the data I'll be showing is cut at 80 nanometer. Uh, I'm currently at 50. Uh, but so the, the sections are coming off the knife, and as they're being uh, cut, they're being floated on water temporarily and then picked up onto the solid aluminum foil substrate. 
where they are then taken up into the top real system. Um, now, in terms of numbers, if we were cutting uh, sagittally through the whole mouse brain uh, at 100 nanometer thick slices, this works out to about uh, one kilometer worth of aluminum foil or 100,000 sections. Uh, ideally, what we're aiming for is the whole mouse brain collected at 50 nanometer thick uh, ultra thin slices, which works out to two kilometers worth of tape. Um, yeah, and so now I'm showing here, again, this, this is sort of uh, describing more in detail this brain on tape idea uh, that I've been working on. Uh, so we're looking at the sectioning collection on the left side. We see the ultra microtome arm. The mouse brain is mounted sagittally. Uh, ultra thin sections are being cut. And you see the aluminum foil uh, on the bottom half of that image. And, uh, and the sections are being collected onto that. Now, um, these, each of these aluminum foil reels is about uh, 500 meters. So if we were to have a whole mouse brain cut and collected at 50 nanometer thickness, uh, this would be about two kilometers or four of the aluminum reels shown in the upper right image. Uh, so, uh, so this is what I've been working on is uh, as soon as possible is getting the whole mouse brain uh, collected on aluminum foil tape uh, for purposes of then feeding into one of these uh, 61 or 91 beam uh, multi-sums for high throughput imaging. Um, now, why do we care about the brain on tape? Uh, so it has some interesting advantages. Uh, so for one thing, uh, we have a, this non-destructive random access volume EM. What this means is that uh, once we have the brain on tape, I mean, we can access, as long as the tape is properly indexed, we can access any part on that tape we can access any part of the brain and we can re-image repeatedly. So we, we have a way to randomly access any of the sections on the brain on tape. Uh, this is work in development. I mean, right now, the, but the idea is there that yes, this is straightforward. We should be able to do this. It's been done in other fields. Uh, so let's just do this with the brain on tape. Now, the more interesting thing I think is the second point, which is the, nanoscale structural and molecular interrogation. Uh, like I said, my goal with this is to have a complete circuit map of uh, a mouse brain. Uh, but we know that the circuit map, the wiring diagram in itself is lacking a lot of information that we would probably want to know if we want to try to understand how the brain does what it does. So it, it is not sufficient to know uh, how all of the neurons are connected to each other. A synapse is not just like any other synapse. We know that there's a great deal of heterogeneity at individual synapses. We know that there are over 50 different types of neuromediators, neurotransmitters, neuropeptides, and a plethora of neuroreceptors that have different postsynaptic responses. We know that there is a, a variety of neurochemistry that we want to be able to interrogate in these sections. And the nice thing with the brain on tape is that now we can actually do that because we can use antibody-based methods or x-ray-based methods or mass, spec, uh, mass spectrometry-based methods in order to interrogate these sections to look at the detailed neurochemistry in addition to the ultrastructure and the neural wiring. So I think this is a way to enrich uh, the concept of the wiring diagram of the brain. We will have not only the wiring diagram, but also any of the neurochemistry that we are interested in looking at, and which I think is, is actually important. Uh, the third point, which is also critical, I think, for uh, having the brain on tape being a useful tool for labs in general is that it enables brain-wide circuit reconstructions without necessarily having to image the whole brain. 
And what I mean by this is that if you have a way to properly index these sections, uh, what you could do is just sparsely image the regions of the brain on tape that you need in order to reconstruct your brain-wide networks without having to bulk image the entire tape. Uh, so like I said, this is largely a software problem and is one that is currently being worked on. But the idea is that not every neuroscientist wants to reconstruct the entire brain-wide circuit. They might be interested just in area X or area Y or area Z. Uh, but if they had a brain on tape, they would be able to they would be able to focus on their particular area of interest. Uh, but they wouldn't be confined to that area of interest. They would be able to see and follow each of the individual afferents and efferents to that area. Uh, by using the brain on tape. So I think this is the idea is that even for scientists with slower microscopes uh, that are not in a position to bulk image the entire brain using high throughput microscopy, uh, the brain on tape offers the possibility of still being able to do these sparse uh, reconstructions for their areas of interest. So this brings us to the, the point of, of or the, the slide of how this would actually work. Uh, it requires an in-chamber reel-to-reel system. When we have the brain on tape, uh, we have to have a way to randomly access positions on that tape inside the microscope uh, and be able to image the sections on tape. And so here in the slide, I'm showing uh, the CAD design at the top for the in-chamber reel-to-reel system. Uh, the bottom image, the bottom in part B is the working prototype, which was used. Uh, this is very much the same principle as the tape collection system. They're just two reels that are actuated by DC motors. Uh, the critical, or the, the key part here is how to actually index the sections on the tape. Uh, this is work currently being done. Uh, so I can't comment too much on that. In part C, I'm showing this in-chamber reel-to-reel system inside. Uh, this is an FEI uh, quanta uh, chamber scope image. In part D is just showing what the actual EM image looks like um, from one of these sections on the aluminum tape. And then finally, I want to say uh, these were very preliminary results on the whole brain serial section electron microscopy uh, that I acquired. Uh, and so I present it here just to show where I was at a couple months ago uh, with this. So in part A and B, I'm showing x-ray micro CT scans of a whole mouse brain preparation that I had prepared for electron microscopy. Uh, from this sample, I had collected uh, about 5,000 serial sections cut at 80 nanometer thickness. Uh, three of these sections were subsequently imaged, scanned in on electron microscope, and this is shown in part C. In uh, part D is showing in the dorsal thalamus region uh, how the processes can be traced across these sections. Uh, and what you can see are that you can readily identify the same processes across those three images, which indicates at least initially that even at the 80 nanometer thickness used here, uh, that you can trace many, it seems reasonable that you should be able to trace neurites across these sections. Of course, this was, like I said, acquired two months ago uh, and things have changed since then. So uh, 50 nanometer slice thickness is the, the current uh, sectioning thickness and uh, the membrane contrast has been improved in many ways. Uh, but this is what I have to show for now. Um, this is a, a higher resolution version of what the, the sections on tape actually look like. So we can see all of the ultrastructure that we would want to see that we would expect to see and, and then some. So we see vesicle clouds and synapses, PSDs, nuclei, neurites. Uh, in addition, we see a lot of cytoskeletal microtubules, neurofilaments, things that which uh, frequently uh, we, are, we do not see at the EM level, uh, but we can see them on the brain on tape. Um, I would like to just say also that this sort of brain on tape concept, so the, the brain preparation, uh, this has been worked out in other 
mammalian brains. This is not just limited to the mouse brain. Uh, the mouse brain is relatively small, uh, even smaller than that is, is the Etruscan pygmy shrew, which is about 80 cubic millimeters. The mouse is 450 cubic millimeters. Uh, and I show that in A and B here, uh, just the micro CTs of samples that were prepared in, in each of those species. Uh, but I've also prepared rat brains for electron microscopy. And my uh, intent, or I guess my, uh, my, my, my ambition is to get to the non-human primate brains. And so this will require some scaling up, but I am optimistic about it, about the EM preparation techniques and the, and the EM imaging throughputs that they'll keep pace with things, with everything. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, this is the forward-looking slide. I mean, we have uh, many mammalian species. I mean, there's something more than 5,000 species of, of mammals. Uh, about 250 are shown here. Uh, this is just a phylogenetic tree based on mitochondrial DNA uh, similarity. Uh, the ambitious goal I have is to get every mammalian species on tape uh, and then we will be in a position to image these different species brains using high throughput microscopy, such as provided by Zeiss with their uh, multi-sem. Uh, and then we'll be able to reconstruct the neural, the neural circuits and have finally a, a much better understanding of how the brain is wired together and how it is able to do what it does. Uh, so I just want to I guess conclude here with what I've actually shown. Uh, so I've discussed the brain on tape technology. This is new because uh, never before have whole mammalian brain samples been prepared for EM nor cut using ultramicrotomy uh, and collected on tape. So this is a new technology that we have. I think it's actually going to be very important down the road in the coming years in neuroscience. Uh, it's something to look out for. Uh, and it will be essential if we want to reconstruct uh, the entire brain circuit. Uh, the second point is that in order to fully utilize the brain on tape, we have to have an in-chamber reel-to-reel -reel system that is able to index and uh, randomly address or randomly access different parts of the brain on tape. And this is a work in progress. So with that, I would like to thank you for your time. Uh, and that's all. Thanks. So hello, everybody. And thanks a lot to Sean for, for this very thorough and detailed introduction to the application side of connectomics with the multisem. So I will now try to complement that with some of the more technical principles of the multi-beam scanning electron microscope from Zeiss and the possibilities this offers for electron microscopic research in neurobiology in particular, but also in other fields of research. To just very quickly sum up what Sean already mentioned, um, connectomic studies the maps of neuronal interconnections within an organism's nervous system. But however, data acquisition time is critical, and until now, this was a very, very hard limiting factor for this kind of research. A state-of-the-art single-beam SEM means about 2.5 hours to image an area of one millimeter squared at a pixel size of four nanometers. And if, if we just do the math to extend this to a cubic millimeter of tissue at 50 nanometer section thickness, this would require almost six years of acquisition time, just pure acquisition time without the overhead that would come with exchanging the sample or downtime of the instrument, like maintenance and so on. With the Zeiss Multisem, this can be now reduced to about three to four months. So this is really an enabling technology for, for this kind of research. And how is this done? With parallel multi-beam image acquisition. If we now have a look at how the technology works, we just start with a single field emitter as with any single beam SEM as well. The beam then gets widened and passes through a multi-hole aperture, which is depicted on the left side of the, of the, of the drawing here. And this multi-hole aperture in principle works like a shower head. Very, very simplified, of course. Um, and this creates the multi-beam array. 
within this multi-beam array, all the individual beams stay at the same position relative to one another as they get imaged onto the sample. On their way, they pass through a beam splitter, with this, which is shown in the middle of this graph. And this works like basically like the magnet and makes the electrons turn right. So finally, the primary electrons hit the sample through the objective lens. On the sample, secondary electrons are generated and these are accelerated towards the objective lens and collected. The beam splitter now makes these secondary electrons that are generated on the sample turn right as well, thus creating the separation between primary and secondary electrons. On their way to the detector, they pass a second set of imaging optics. Therefore, the multi-beam array creates a pattern of secondary electrons in the detection plane. What follows is a standard electron detection chain with scintillators and so on. So only in this case, there is one such detection chain for each beam, giving a total of 61 detection chains for 61 beams, or 91 for the second variety of the multisem, which operates 91 beams in parallel. To just make this a little bit more clear, if we look at the detection plane, which is the first step of this detection chain is a scintillator, um, we see the image on, on the left. This is an actual picture of that scintillator. And all these bright spots are secondary electrons. And this also shows how this quite odd number of 61 came into place, which is we wanted to arrange the beams in a fashion that it, it resembles the, the circular fashion of the, of the electron optics best to get rid of the, the most severe aberrations, which would be in the corner of this field. Now, as all of these beams are scanned in parallel globally, um, the, the individual beams generates images of a subfraction of the multi-beam field of view. So the central beam would image the central part of the field of view, and this, the other depicted beam here would image the other part of the subfield, and all the other beams generate the rest of the field of view. So within one scan pass, an image is generated that is about 100 micrometers wide and about 30,000 pixels from left to right. And this is just generated within one scan pass and in, in about one or two seconds. The next animation shows just schematically how, how this instrument works to make it a little bit clearer. The single electron source produces a single electron beam which goes through the multi-hull aperture I'd already, I already mentioned. And therefore, we end up with an array of multiple beams, which are shown in blue. Now, these are scanned over the surface globally. And the secondary electrons that are generated on the sample surface, in, shown in green here, are collected and separated from the other electrons by the beam splitter. The signal electrons are then projected onto the scintillator, which is shown on the, on the right-hand side of this animation. And the changes in signal intensity over time, while the primary beams scan over the sample surface, the signal intensity changes are detected from the backside of the scintillator with an array of detectors, namely one detector per beam. And just to compare that to a single beam SEM, at the same time that a single beam SEM takes to image that small area in the center shown here, the multisem image the whole large hexagonal field of view at once. And if we want to go for even larger areas, like for example, a square millimeter, um, the, we just move the stage in between and generate a mosaic of this hexagonal fields of view. So the areas that can be imaged are in principle not limited, only by the time that it still would need to image that. This is an image acquired from a brain tissue sample which is also um, ultra th an ultra-thin section on, collected on tape with basically the application um, example that Sean already talked about. And um, also, this is also uh, an osmium staining protocol. So here as well, osmium is used as the, the contrasting heavy metal that is introduced into the membranes of the sample. And as we see, the contrast is actually pretty, pretty good very, very high contrasted samples. And as the multisem features a very, very high detection efficiency, the dwell times usually can be short 
very very short as well. Usually we operate the system with about 100 or maybe 200 nanoseconds uh, dwell time per pixel, which is compared to single beam SEMs pretty, pretty fast. The second variety of the multi-SIM, just to be complete here, um, features 91 beams. And this is also the, the system that is it, at the lab of Winfried Deng. Um, so this, uh, Sean also talked about that a little bit. Uh, one special thing about these two varieties is not only that the 91 beam system has 30 beams more than the 61 beam system, it also features an even larger field of view because the distance between the individual beams is larger. For the 61 beam system it's 12 micrometers and in the 91 beam system it's 18 micrometers. So the field of view in the end is about 3.5 times larger than for the 61 beam uh, system. And this in the end uh, gives you acquisition times that are, that are also three times faster than for the, 91, uh, for the 61 beam system. In the end, you can image about a square centimeter in just less than three hours with the 91 beam system. If we now have a look at a really large area that has been imaged, this is a complete ultra thin section of about three square millimeter size. For ultra microscopic dimensions, this is, this is huge. With the multi-SEM, we need for such an area about, let's say like 20 minutes, so one square millimeter can be imaged in, in like six to 10 minutes. These are very typical imaging times. Of course, it always depends a little bit on the actual imaging parameters that you set. But this is, a, as a ballpark figure, a square millimeter in less than 10 minutes is very, very reasonable. When it comes to the user interface, the Multisem is equipped with the Zen software which is the same software as Zeiss uses for the light microscopes. So here the, um, the, the thinking, the idea of correlative microscopy is already embedded into the software. The standard workflow um, when working with the multisem and especially for the serious section um, array tomography workflow goes like this. Um, we start with a light microscope that takes an overview image of the whole sample. The sample that is shown here is a wafer, a four-inch silicon wafer, and on this wafer um, tape strips with serial section on tops on top are uh, are glued on the, on, on the, onto the, the silicon wafer. So what we see here is actually um, just the overview image from the light microscope and uh, shown in, in red are the, um, are the serial sections. These can be detected automatically on this, on this overview image generated by the light microscope. If we then mark a region of interest that we would want to image in the end, this is then transferred to all the, all the sections that has been detected already. And it, it's done in a pretty intelligent way, which um, also takes into account that a section might be rotated so that um, it is always the, the actual region of interest that is imaged. Now, when it comes to, um, to, the, to the actual imaging process, we set up a recipe um, with the imaging parameters that we would want to take. Um, we choose an imaging strategy, which for example, when it comes to focusing and stigmating of, uh, of the images um, is highly automated. So the, the whole multi-SAM um, operates in a very automated way, which is, comes pretty naturally because you don't want to deal with multiple electron beams um, manually. So we have a high degree of automation um, that is implemented into the software. So in this case, we acquire um, focus support points. And um, these are the, the yellow depicted points on, on, the, on, the, on the user interface here, where the software automatically um, finds the right focus plane and then interpolates these this values over the whole area. So the imaging is then in the end uh, faster again. So to very quickly sum up the, the connectomics workflow with the multi-SEM, we start with a single hexagonal field of view, create a mosaic from a larger area, which is then stitched in 2D. 
And these 2D images then in the end can be stacked and aligned in 3D to reconstruct the previously sectioned volume. This 3D alignment and reconstruction and also what is what follows then the segmentation of the data, these are things that um, is are usually done with either open source software or with the um, with the individual solutions that exist in the labs that that we collaborate with. What comes out in the end is basically a reconstructed data set from which then the information that Sean already showed in his very first slide can be derived. Like for example, the 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 statistics about how neurons are connected to each other or how many synapses um, exist in a certain area. This is maybe now the, the, the application that we know best, that we understood best, because most of the customers we deal with are um, working in the field of connectomics. But we're also looking into other um, research fields. One, for example, is um, bone research, where we collaborate with a, with a researcher in, um, in Sydney, in Australia, and where people want to understand um, how the cellular components within a bone are arranged and how they are localized with respect to other, to other components of the bone. And one um, keyword here is large area statistics. Uh, so a large area of a polished bone surface um, has been acquired and the viable and non-viable cells have been analyzed and um, stand, um, well statistically evaluated over this large area. Another application that we just started looking in is the imaging of shale rocks. When people in geology want to understand how the, the layers of, of rock are arranged and, and how the, um, the components of these rocks, again, are uh, localized with respect to each other, and what we see here is that, again, a very large area, like here it's nine square millimeters that can be imaged in very, very short time. Um, and on this image, we still see uh, some, uh, for example, pirates, or we also see pores. And the, the evaluation of the localization of, of these features on this large area, this is something that just hasn't been possible before with single beam SCM. In material science, there's also quite some interest for uh, for large area imaging. Um, here we did a collaboration with the Helmholtz Center in Berlin. And when it comes to looking for very small features on a large area, in this case, it's nanowires that are um, that are that cover a transparent electrode material. Um, the Large area imaging in, in very short time, this is something that in, in some material science uh, applications is also of high interest. Just to very quickly sum up um, the, the multisim in total, for the time being, we have two varieties, the multisim 505 and the 506, which operate 61 or 91 beams in parallel. And these are the, the first multi-beam scanning electron microscope of the world so far. Being that, they are also the fastest SEMs in the world, and the, the top net speed of the 91-beam system would be about two terapixels per hour. The resolution is in mean 3.5 nanometers for the 61-beam system and eight nanometers for the 91-beam system, which is, for applications like connectomics, is basically just good enough. Also, the system is designed for continuous high-throughput imaging, um, which is achieved by a very high degree of automation, especially on the software side. And the first target applications is, as I said already, um, connectomics, but also in semiconductor reprocessing, inspection, and also in some other material science fields, um, very ultra-high-throughput electron microscopy is of high interest. Also, the one thing to mention is that the Zeiss Multisem, for the time being, is marketed as um, as an early adopter system. The Zeiss Multisem, to just quickly sum up that talk, also comes with a set of special conditions, which are called the Research Partner Program. This is a program that is limited to the first 15 units, and it is targeted to early customers who are willing to explore the opportunities of such a new technology. 
So what is included in this research partner program is basically a warranty extension of five years. So the the, the first five years, customers don't need to care for um, for for service contract or something. This is already included into uh, the initial purchase price. But there's also a set of uh, of other program incentives. Uh, which include extensive operator training, um, very thorough support from our multi-SEM R&D team when it comes to customization of the system. Um, it also includes funding of scientific outreach and we offer direct access to um, the application support from our team. So with this, I would like to um, now acknowledge basically the team that is behind this tool, um, which is a well, it's a group of about 30 people that work exclusively for the for the Multisem at Zeiss. And I also would like to um, to point out that there's further information and also some example data set that can be found on the webpage zeiss.com slash Multisem. With this, I'd like to thank everybody for their attention. Thanks, Sean and Annalena. That was an excellent presentation. So we will now have a question and answer session. We have some questions from the audience, which I will put to Sean and Stefan Nickel, who is our representative from Zeiss today. So the first question up, I think this is for you, Sean. Um, it's about the penetration depth of osmium tetroxide. It's from Alfred Van Hoek, and he says that the, the penetration depth of osmium tetroxide tetroxide is limited so how does this actually work for a whole brain so um alfred so there are different ways of preparing osmium tetroxide solutions uh so if you have a large sample and throw it in un unbuffered osmium tetroxide there are no problems with penetration um now if you have buffered osmium tetroxide solutions uh, the buffer itself can cause interactions uh, that will limit the, the fusion into the sample. Um, but for the particular case that I was looking at, uh, we were doing, we wanted to have enhanced membrane staining. And for that, we were using what's called this reduced osmium staining. So it's, it's not just osmium tetroxide, uh, but it's a combination of osmium tetroxide in uh, potassium ferrocyanide. And the, this combination results in a mixture of osmium oxides in the staining. In the staining. So there's uh, osmium tetroxide, which is plus eight oxidation state. Uh, and then there are lower osmium oxides in the plus six, um, these osmates. And this gives you this enhanced membrane contrast. Now, the problem was that with the reduced osmium staining uh, mixture, this would only penetrate about 200 microns into the tissue uh, before this barrier, this precipitation reaction would occur. And there was no further uh, staining inside the block, anything that, that had usable contrast. Um, and so the how to solve that problem uh, for the reduced osmium staining was I, uh, I thought about the mechanism. So this was something where uh, the in the department that I work in, Winfried Deng, the director here, uh, he's a physicist by training and he is always uh, emphasizing that we understand mechanisms for things, why things happen in a certain way. And he brings a physicist perspective to it, uh, which for me, I'm more sort of biochemistry, chemically oriented neuroanatomy. Uh, it forces me to, yeah, to think about why there should be penetration problems in the first place. And, and we settled on that it could be something where the, the ferrocyanide reagent, which is included with the osmium tetroxide <clears throat> in the reduced osmium stain, is, uh, it, it, it has uh, a minus four uh, charge. So it's a, verily, it's a verily highly charged anionic species that we were thinking would probably have very limited penetration into the sample. Um, there were a few other ideas that also came out. And uh, in, in the short of it is that the mechanistic approach to it uh, didn't yield the answer that we were looking for. The thing that finally 
solve the problem was just to uh, explore a parameter space. So in this case, I was looking at many different solvents. Uh, I was looking at many different detergents, things that would allow for any chemical to penetrate into tissue. Um, and it turned out that the use of this uh, polar substance, formamide, allowed for penetration of the reduced osmium stain throughout in, in entire brains. And the exact mechanism for this is unclear. Uh, it might be that it's preventing precipitation reactions that would inhibit further penetration of the stain into the sample. Um, it could be because it, its high polarity enables, I don't know, greater access of the staining reagents of the charged osmium species into the sample. The, the exact mechanism underlying it was not known, uh, but the process by which it was solved was just to screen intelligently a, a set of 50 or so different parameters, uh, including solvents and detergents and other things that would enhance penetration, and, and then seeing what actually worked. Okay, thank you very much, Sean. That was a very detailed answer, so thank you for that. I now have a question from Susan. This may also be from you, for you, Sean. Um, how quickly do the sections dry on the tape, and what keeps them from coming off the tape? And also, what keeps the tape flat? Because, of course, if the tape is not flat, then I guess it cannot be imaged at a single focal plane. Yes. Uh, so, it if you're mounting, if you're collecting the sections out of water, and you can use alternative solvents, but generally you collect sections out of water, and uh, they will dry within a period of uh, 30 seconds to one minute, or I mean, certainly well within short enough time that you don't have to be, I've never had issues with uh, sections collected from water mm. that have gone to the real uh, in still a wet state. So it's just a matter of, of a few tens of seconds or over a minute before it dries. Um, now, the other question was about what is why the sections stick to the tape. Yeah. Uh, so I think this is due to the hydrophilicity of the substrate that the sections uh, bind to. So in the sections themselves, you have to consider that you have amine groups and hydroxyl groups, uh, and you have a big flat section. And the substrate itself uh, should, so the, the test that we've run suggests, uh, me and, and also others, have suggested that you, it's good to have a hydrophilic substrate so something with, for instance, many amine or hydroxyl groups uh, or, yeah, or, or something. And, and so the idea is that the reason why the sections actually stick or adhere to a hydrophilic substrate is because ultimately these van der Waals forces, uh, you have large contact between the section and a substrate uh, with a large number of polar uh, functionalities. And this is keeping everything together. Um, and the other question was about the flatness of it. Uh, and I believe, so the, the flatness, there are two different ways to answer this. One is when the sections are collected on the tape substrate, you can have wrinkles that form that would cause it to be non-flat, which is not ideal. Uh, having a hydrophilic substrate helps with this. Uh, there are also other things you can do to like matching the pickup speed to the cutting speed or having it slightly faster so that you don't have the formation of wrinkles. The wrinkles in the sections can come from several different sources. So you can have solvent that's trapped uh, underneath the section that when it evaporates, it causes a wrinkle to form. You can have the section pick up not completely parallel to the knife so that one edge is picked up over the other and this causes torsion in the section and this can lead to wrinkles. Um, if you pay sufficient attention to the section pickup and you ensure that the substrate is hydrophilic, I think you can ensure that most of these wrinkles are, are not present. Uh, now, the other source of the, the flatness is during the actual imaging. I mean, maybe in the in-chamber reel-to-reel system, the section has to be perfectly flat in order to image it or uh, to assume that the section can be fit to a plane. And for this, the, the, the tape is actually stretched with tension across a flat substrate. Uh, to ensure that it, it has that planar approximation. Great, thank you. And now I have a question, and I think this one is probably for Stefan. So this is from Siti Nalem. 
and um, they want to create a gradient of gold nanoparticles with different spacing, um, both with steep and shallow gradients, where the length of the gold nanoparticle gradient will be one to two millimeters. Um, would it be possible to image this using the multi-SEM platform? Yes, it would be possible to image that. The easiest okay. is if these guys are really interested in, in getting some uh, micrographs from us to contact us, um, you, you'll find the contact information on our webpage. Just drop me a line and uh, we see what we can do. Okay, great. Thank you for that. I think that pretty much brings us to the end of the webinar. So thanks again to Sean, Anna and Stefan for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion. And thank you also to our sponsor, ZEISS. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you have enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the seminars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There you can also see the other webinars we have lined up for you in Bite Size Bio's webinar festival. So next time, until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Zeiss and Bite Size Bio. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.